the conclusion of our consecutive expository series in the Old Testament book of Micah. And as we've seen in this book, if you've been with us in this series for a while, if you've seen when the, uh, been with us, you know that it's a book of dire warnings and of daring hope. There's dark and there's light. There are sad things and bad things and there are good things that are foretold, that are promised to come. There is doom and yet there is also again deliverance as the Lord has compassion and mercy upon his people. Now we're in the final chapter, chapter 7 of the book of Micah. By the way, if, if you've missed any of the series, you can pick it up on uh, our, our iPod, not on iPod, but uh, our, what's, what's it called? Yeah, well, it, it, either podcast, that's it, YouTube or podcast. I'm not, I'm not that much of a Luddite, I really am not, but I uh, sure, sure sounded like it there. Um, uh, yeah, on either YouTube uh, or on the podcast, and I think the podcast stays out there for quite a while. The uh, YouTube may have some limits at when it when it continues, but I think it's on one or both of those. So, um, if for a while we've been, like I say, looking at, at that, but now we're in the final chapter of Micah, and Micah, in this last chapter, plants in our last time. I wasn't with you, and uh, by the way, thanks thanks to Brent for filling in the pulpit last week for me as I was away on study leave, but. Uh, in the, before that and the one before that, Micah plants his feet squarely on the covenantal promises of, that God made to Abraham, and he waits for God to hear him. He knows that they are ripe for judgment. They, have, they are, are ready to be plucked and carried off into judgment because of their sin, and yet he waits for the Lord confidently. He positions himself, and now we come to the final section of Micah's prophecy in chapter 7, verses 8 through 20. And that is our scripture reading this morning. So let's now respond and hear with attention the word of the living God. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river and from the sea to the sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruits of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, 
who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might, and they shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. And they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot and you will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. And you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Do we have... No, no, uh, are we missing this slide? That's the only slide we've got? Okay. Uh, well, anyway, uh, the title, I'll just tell you that, the title of this one is the Song of Deliverance. It was about lament last week or two weeks ago. Now it is a different story. The Song of Victory. The Song of Victory is our title for this message this morning. In our last session, Micah was showing us how to sing, but he was showing us how to sing a lament. Now, today, he's concluding his book with a liturgical song of victory. Song of victory. Today, he concludes this song, this hymn, if you will, with four stanzas. You know what a stanza is. We, we sing it in our hymn books. You pick it out. It's got four verses on, or four stanzas, and then it may have also, sometimes they're referred to as verses. But it's got four stanzas, and each line, it, each of those stanzas has three lines. So consistently, all throughout this particular passage that we read. And there's a lot of things that, again, are, remember, are symbolic they are poetic terms that are to be not always understood literally, but to be understood as a way of, of making a point. To, and so you see that in this song of victory. A lot of things in there even that are puzzling and confusing. And hopefully we'll be able to, to shake some of that out with a little greater clarity today. So to do that, we're going to use this outline. The profession, the promise... The prayer and the praise. Those are the four things that we're going to be looking at that are in this text this morning. First of all, the profession. That's in verses 8 through 10. And again, I'm going to, to give you a sense of this, we're going to look at each one of these again piece by piece. Verses 8 
through 10. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemies will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire in the streets. Now that first stanza that Micah is expressing confidence that though the city of God, probably Jerusalem in this case, is who's in view, because Jerusalem is going to go into captivity and is going to be taken down. But he knows that after that, God is not through with her and he is going to do something that is going to turn the whole circumstance around. And instead of being laughed and mocked at as they were being mocked at, he knew that was coming, but he said there's going to come beyond that that my enemies will, will not be able to continue to taunt us forever. One day the Lord will cause us to rise again, as it were, like a phoenix from the ashes. And in her fallen state, in the, in the, the Old Testament church, if you will, in that fallen state, when things were bad, it was in such a time, at the darkest time, that's when God brought renewal and revival. And in her fallen status, she, Micah says, will confess her sins, first of all, that's repentance, and, and profess her faith. The people of God, the remnant of God that are, are being brought to repentance and returning to the Lord in faith. Now, why does it say that? He said, because the Lord is a light to me. After the downfall, there will be an uprising. That's what Micah is trying to get across to us today and to those that were listening to him in his day. God is not always through. It seems like he's forgotten us, he's left us, and he's not going to deliver. But Micah is saying he will. After the downfall, there will be an uprising. After the darkness, there will be a new light. Things will change. They won't always be wherein God's people are getting the worst end of the stick always. Where they are being pummeled and judged, there will come a time when God once again brings about a great reversal of fortunes. Remember in the days of the Reformation, those of you that know a little bit about the Protestant Reformation, there was an, a motto and still blazoned on a wall with four figures from the Reformation. And, and under that, on that wall, are the words in Latin, post tenebris lux, after darkness, light. God works that way. He's that kind of God. When you think it's over, there's no hope. Then when people repent, God again returns and causes there to be a new flourishing. These enemies will one day, that mock God now, when they say, where is the Lord your God? 
Where is he on your side? Micah is saying, on behalf of what God has spoken to me, the day of your ascendance will come to an end. And God will vindicate his people. Vindication is coming on behalf of God's covenant people. That's what he's saying. There's an interesting passage in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 36. And it's referring to, again, a time back in Israel's history, back in the time of Moses and of Joshua. In that time, things they had they had fallen away from the Lord and committed idolatries and had been judged. And yet, even then, God was pronouncing a principle that we see again here. And that principle is, is reflected in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 36. Listen. For the Lord, this is in after a context of having been chastened and judged. For the Lord will vindicate his people. That word there literally is to judge in behalf of or to judge for. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that she's powerful and really got her stuff together. No, no. He will do this. He will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is nothing remaining bond or free. It's not because we got our stuff together and have become better. It's they were embraced their brokenness and acknowledged and confessed and repented. And the Lord then vindicated and judged in behalf of them. Yes, they're not worthy, but he judged them worthy because he is the Lord. In faith, Micah believes that the enemies who taunted and trampled Jerusalem will one day be trampled themselves. You see, God has plans for his people that go beyond judgment. God is a God who in time and in eternity will judge. Not always the way or in the timing that we want or, or desire or expect, but he will. He is a God and he has plans for his people, but those plans are beyond judgment. They're not just for judgment. They go beyond that. And that's what Micah is saying here, reminding the people of God. God's not through with us yet. His promises are still going to eventually come to pass. God had already said that it was not the end of the story, either for God's people or even for the wicked nations that were oppressing them. God even has a plan for that, as we're going to see. Now, secondly, the promise. That's in verses 11 through 13. The second stanza of the victory song promises God's people will become a sheepfold, offering salvation to a world under judgment. Two things going on. The world is being judged, and yet God is offering salvation. All the way through, God's been working, working his purposes out. And then listen again to that in verses 11 through 13. The day for the building of your walls. A day is coming, Micah says, 
for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, that's the Euphrates River that's being spoken of, way far to the east, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruits of their deeds. The last day is symbolically depicted by the restoration of Jerusalem's walls. He's saying that day, a day is coming. He says that's, that's symbolic of the restoration, of the restoring of Israel's homeland and of Jerusalem again. Not, no longer in exile. He's envisioning a time yet to come. And the extension of the boundaries that once were known under, under Moses and under, uh, 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 under David and Solomon, those are going to be extended again. And outside, there are secure borders now in Jerusalem. But there is outside of God's salvation, there is a judgment in time and eternity. Now they both are, as you're going to see in a moment, they both are playing side by side. They both are happening at various times, various circumstances. Both salvation and deliverance and judgment and doom. Now the prayer of verse is in, uh, found in the third stanza, is in verses 14 through 17. The third stanza of the song in which Micah prays that the Lord will again shepherd his people like he did with Moses and protect his people from an unbelieving enemy, those who were trampling them down, those who were mocking them. Micah takes up a thesis that believing Israel will be saved and the unbelieving enemies of God will be defeated. And he's right, and he's wrong, <laughs> as we're going to see. He doesn't see all the way. He sees, by the help of God, he sees some things that are coming on the horizon, or will come to pass. But he doesn't see the big and complete picture. None of the prophets did. The scriptures tell us that. There is a tension, you see, here. Micah takes up the thesis that has God saving and God judging. And there's a tension there that we as Christians today still need to struggle. We need to, to try to get a better grip on that reality. There's a tension that we need to feel, and it's a tension that is left and purposely left in the Scriptures all over the place for us to see. And that is... God is a God of justice, and God is also a God of mercy. He's not one or the other. He's both and, and he always has been, and he always will be. But how do we deal with it? How do we, how do we sometimes see the interplay of that? You see, it should be a surprise to us. It should be. A surprise to us that a loving God would judge. That, 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 would, that, that might be indeed a surprise to us. But it should 
excuse me, it sh- I'm, 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 I'm actually misstated that. It should not be a surprise that a loving God would judge, but it should be a surprise that he would find a way to forgive. In other words, the judgment is something we deserve and rightly deserve. We don't get a pass on that unless he's merciful. But what we should be blown away is when we sinful people are forgiven, are shown compassion, are given mercy instead of just judgment. That should be the thing that blows our mind and makes us wonder about such an amazing grace. C.S. Lewis In one of his essays, Letters to Malcolm, writes to Malcolm, this figure, and this guy, Malcolm, in his essay, is uh, basically has this idea about the judgment of God. And the judgment of God, in Malcolm's idea, is it's just kind of like a, 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 an electrical current. Now, if you get up against it and bump into it, it's going to bite you. It's going to hurt you, but it really, it really has no feelings. It has no passions. It's, it's just, it just is. It's just there, and you get too close to it, bam. C.S. Lewis did not see the judgment of God that way, and this is how he responded to Malcolm. My dear Malcolm, what do you suppose you have gained by substituting the image of a live wire for that of an angered majesty. You have shut up all, you have shut us all up in despair. For the angry can forgive, electricity can't. Turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval, and you also turn his love into mere humanitarianism. The consuming fire and the perfect beauty both vanish. We have instead a judicious headmistress or a conscientious magistrate. (laughs) How C.S. Lewis esque is that just basically saying you don't get either you you can't just have one he is both he is just and he is merciful you see if God is not a God of love and justice if you're struggling with that, as I sometimes do, especially the people that I think need it and God's not giving it. But if God is not a God of love and justice, then we'll never know that we're truly valued. And we can never know that there will be justice down the road someday. We'll never know. You see, you would have to know he is there, and he's not silent. 
And he is just, but he is also merciful. And that is what is unfolding in this whole last part of this chapter. And it's going to break out even more here. You see, the fourth part is the praise. Chapter 18, verse 20. You may recall that Micah's name was what? Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? That's what Micah's name, basically the essence of it, is saying, stands for. And he may have been employing a wordplay on his own name to emphasize God's compassionate forgiveness. This God that has every right to judge and who will judge his enemies. And yet, sometimes he has great mercy on his enemies and slays his enemies in order to make them his friends. You see, in this last stanza of the song this is what we find in chapter or verse 18 through verse 20 who is a god like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And you will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. And you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Wow, what a God of compassion. What a God of incredible mercy to people who don't deserve it. And that's all of us and every one of us. You see, the people join Micah in a celebration of God's forgiveness and faithfulness in this hymn of praise. God delights to display a commitment to secure pardon for his repentant people. He calls again and again in the Old Testament and the New, turn, repent, recognize, go in the box against yourself, tell the truth about what you've done and what you are. And yet I am a God who loves to bring people like that. Out of darkness into light. I'm a God that loves to show compassion to those who acknowledge the truth and repent. You see, long ago, God had cast the Egyptians into the Red Sea. Remember? You know the story. But now, can you believe it? That He was taking the enemies of God and immersing them into the sea of judgment. That same God is now. That same God now 
is promising to cast his people's iniquities and sins into the deepest sea. I love that hymn that we've sung here sometime, and we, we, I wish we could learn it. It's a little challenging, to, harder to, to do as a, as a group, but it's just incredible text, the words. It's His Be the Victor's Name. Uh, was recorded uh, an old hymn many years ago and redone by Zach Hicks. And this is one of the lines from it talking about what God has done in casting our, our sins into the sea. He says, bless, bless the conqueror slain, talking about Jesus, slain by divine decree. It was planned, it was purposed before the foundation of the world. Who lived, who died, and lives again. For thee, my soul, for thee. My sin is cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. No more to haunt accusingly, for Christ has lived and Christ has died for me. And then he goes on to say, What though the vile accuser roar, my sins that I have done, I know them well. And thousands more. In other words, you don't even have the beginning of how sinful you are. My God, he knoweth none. I know my sins and thousands more. God doesn't know any of them because he's cast them into the deepest sea of his own forgotten memory. Who is a God like this? Would you ever Want to give your life for a God that was not this God? Furthermore, his steadfast love, Micah says in this last section, secures his utter commitment to their covenant faithfulness. Let let me paint that a little more clearly. Not our covenant faithfulness, He's saying what God has done and will do is secure the covenant faithfulness of covenant breakers like you and me. He's the one that's going to guarantee that we get to go to the party. That we get to go to the banquet. That we who were despised and trampled, that we are the ones that are going to be with him in his covenant faithful love. His promises were made to the patriarchs and they will not fail. And the reason they won't fail is not based upon your and my doings. It's what he has done in substitution for us. His promises were made to the patriarchs, and they will not fail, but they will even do more than that. They will expand into the whole wide world. It's not just in a little bitty spot. God is saying, I am this kind of God, and I'm going to bring salvation to the whole world. These goim, these Gentiles that you hate and despise, that have punished you 
and brought suffering to you one day these people and their descendants are going to take my gospel to the ends of the earth. That's how big the plan and purpose of God is. You see, his steadfast love, his chesed, secures his utter commitment to their covenant faithfulness and promises to the patriarch that expand to the ends of the earth. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, Paul writing, Know then, he's seeing what Micah doesn't fully see back over here on his side of the, the cross. He doesn't fully understand how that's going to come out, but Paul is looking at it the other way, and he sees and knows exactly how all that came to fruition and fulfillment. Paul says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other words, you can be the vilest, dirtiest, rotten Gentile that ever walked the planet. And you can also be as justified and right and righteous as Father Abraham. The one whose sins were removed from him and it was not counted unto him but it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So where do we go from here? I want you to listen to this quote from Stephen Um, is, I guess is how you pronounce it. He's, uh, he wrote, wrote a commentary on Micah. So where do we go from here? He says, we can experience the grace of God because this one individual who provided the resolution of all the apparently irreconcilable tension between the justice and mercy of God. You know who he's talking about? Of course, Jesus. The answer to every child's question. <laughs> what, what, what's the answer? Jesus. That's the one person, the one individual who provided the resolution of all the apparently irreconcilable tension between the justice and mercy of God. And because he did, the verdict has been declared and we are free to go. The court is adjourned. We are now free to live our lives for our gracious and holy God and for the good of others who need our mercy. Like father, like son. Remember, again, another great hymn, Mercy Speaks by Jesus' blood. Here in seeing you, sons of God, justice satisfied indeed. Christ has full atonement made. All our sins were cast on me, and she must. Talking about us, the believers, 
that if faith in Christ must and shall go free. That's what our great God has done. Who is a God like him? There is none. Amen? Let's pray. Father, oh, we thank you for such amazing grace and mercy to those who do not deserve it, who in every way deserve your judgment, which is righteous and pure and holy and true. And yet, Father, we would have never had the hope of being with you or standing with you in glory were it not for, Father, your promises that you set in motion and in which you culminated in your Son. And Father, as we take this meal of remembrance that we call the Lord's Supper today, remind us of how we, the guilty, get to go free. How we, because of what Christ has done, we now must and shall go free. Oh, Father, such grace, such mercy. We bless you. We exalt you. We praise you. We honor you as our great God, who is a God like you. Bless your name. Amen.